and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, the Woodchipper murder case. It occurred in 1986 in both Newtown and Southbury, Connecticut. It's been called one of the most gruesome crimes in history, not just in Connecticut, but anywhere. My guest is John Dwyer, town historian of the town of Southbury, and somebody who knew the key private eye in this case, Keith Mayo, and followed the progression of the case. And now, Connecticut's Woodchipper murder case. Every so often, a crime is committed that is so vicious, so heinous, so incomprehensible that it lodges in the collective memory of society never to be forgotten. Almost legendary in nature, if that's the right way to describe it. Well, this definition fits precisely a crime that occurred back in 1986 in the then-quiet town of Newtown, Connecticut. It didn't involve a gun, a knife, or any of a number of other familiar murder weapons. No, it involved a wood chipper. And in addition to this unusual aspect of the case... It also lives on in Connecticut legal circles as being the only murder conviction obtained in state history in which an actual corpse was never found. The key events in 1986 occurred over a four-day period in November. It was about a week before Thanksgiving. Let's just do a brief summary and we'll get into more details later. Tuesday, November 18, 1986. Hella Crafts, a Danish airline stewardess with Pan Am Airlines, returns to JFK from Frankfurt, Germany. There was a heavy freak early season snowstorm bearing down on Newtown. A friend drove her to her house in Newtown at 5 Newfield Lane and dropped her off. Well, that would be the last time any of her friends or family ever saw her again, except for her husband, Richard Crafts. Her three children were already asleep. The storm blanketed northern Fairfield County with 8 to 10 inches of heavy, wet snow. Tree limbs snapped and fell on power lines. Power went out across a wide area, including at the Crafts' home. Wednesday, November 19th, the next day, at 6 a.m. in the morning, Richard Crafts suddenly awakened the housekeeper and his three children and said that Helly was driving to his sister Karen's house in Westport where power was still on and he was going to take them there as well. Schools were closed so they could spend the day there. Well, once he had them settled in Westport, he left abruptly, telling them he'd be back later. Hella never arrived. At 7 p.m., he returned to pick them up. That night, the housekeeper asked Richard, where was Hella? He said he didn't know. He told her that Hella had gotten out of bed, dressed, took her flight bags, and left the house an hour before them. On Thursday, November 20th, the housekeeper noticed that three chunks of the couple's bedroom carpet had been cut out. When she asked Richard about this, he said that he had spilled kerosene there and had to cut out the pieces. He said he was also planning to replace the entire carpet as part of a remodeling project in the house. Friday, November 21st, it's now less than a week until Thanksgiving, and at about 3 a.m. in the morning, a snowplow operator sees a man on the banks of the Housatonic River. The man is standing by a U-Haul truck with a wood chipper attached to it. The man signals to the plow driver to just keep going, which he does. The plow driver will later recall that the man 
was wearing a hat that looked a little bit like a police hat. To set the stage properly for this story, one needs to know a little bit about the history of Hella and Richard Crafts. They were a married couple living in Newtown with three children, described by some as the perfect family. Hella had been an only child, born in Denmark in 1947. She excelled at school, attended college in England, and went to France to work as an au pair. Well, there she found that Pan American Airways, now a defunct airline, was looking for stewardesses in the Copenhagen area. 200 women applied. Eight were selected. Not only was Hella among them, but when they sent them to Miami for training classes, Hella graduated first in her class. And while in training in Miami, Hella stayed at a small motel, a facility populated by airline employees, stewardesses, and pilots. That's where she met Richard, who was a pilot for Eastern Airlines, and stayed at the motel when in Miami in between flights. Richard was 10 years older than Helly. He was born in New York City in 1937. He had two older sisters. His father, John Crafts, was a very successful businessman in Manhattan. He bought the family a home in well-to-do Darien. Unlike his wife-to-be, Richard Crafts was not a standout student. He dropped out of college and in 1956 joined the Marines. There he learned to fly and he liked it. In fact, he reportedly flew missions for Air America, a group widely reported to be connected to the CIA. In 1968, at the age of 31, he landed the job as pilot with Eastern. One year later, in 1969, Richard was 32 and Hella was 22. That's when they met at the motel in Miami when he was on a layover, and he was engaged to be married. Well, many published reports quote her friends as saying that Hella just more or less looked the other way. It would be another six years before they decided to get married, and at that time, she was pregnant with their first child. Within a year, they would buy their house at 5 Newfield Lane in Newtown. They went on to have two more children. Richard had a strong attraction to guns. Owning police said enough weapons to arm 50 men. They included shotguns, various handguns, including a 357 Magnum, 9mm automatic, and 44 caliber revolver. High-powered rifles, semi-automatic weapons, crossbows, hand grenades, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. He frequently attended gun shows and regularly added to his arsenal. He also bought an extensive array of landscaping machines, many of which he never used but sat on his property, some rusting and inoperable. Included was a $25,000 backhoe. Neighbors had complained to officials about it being an eyesore. In 1982, while still an active, high-paid pilot, Richard became an auxiliary officer for the Newtown Police Department. Reports said that he hung around the station, even went off-duty, and occasionally responded to police calls without authorization. Four years later, in 1986, he was hired as a part-time officer in neighboring Southbury. He earned $7 an hour and paid for training seminars out of his own pocket. Southbury and Newtown are separated by the Housatonic River, which also serves as the county line. Newtown's in Fairfield County and Southbury's in New Haven County. The only way you get from one to the other using local roads is to cross the so-called Silver Bridge. In Newtown, Glen Road leads to the bridge. In Southbury, it's River Road. With Richard's experience in both departments, he now knew their operations on both sides of the river. 
To top it off, Richard bought a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria, the same vehicle and model used at the time by the Connecticut State Police. He outfitted it at his own cost with radios, antennae, police lights, and even a siren. Helen, meantime, was concerned about her marriage, which had gone on at that point for 11 years. After their three children were born, she had gone back to work as an airline stewardess, and the couple had brought in a 19-year-old live-in au pair, Dawn Marie Thomas, and she was supposed to care for the children. Hella became aware that Richard's philandering had been ongoing for some time. Not only that, but she was fed up with his violent temper. Her friends saw that she showed up in public with bruises on her face. She began to speak openly with her friends about her plans for divorce. In September of 1986, Hella retained a divorce attorney. She also hired a private detective to see if she could prove that Richard was having an affair. She selected Keith Mayo, a New Milford resident and former policeman in Connecticut. She gave him a box full of financial records and receipts and shared with him some of her own suspicions of women Richard might have been seeing. John Dwyer, the town historian for Southbury, Connecticut, actually went to school with Keith Mayo and knew him. She was concerned that her husband was cheating on her and had him go around and follow her, and he took pictures and gave them to her, and so it was likely she was using that to file for a divorce. Mayo allegedly had photos of Richard Kraft's kissing Nancy Dodd, an Eastern Airlines flight attendant outside her New Jersey home. The theory was that Hella confronted Richard with that evidence the night she returned from Frankfurt in the snowstorm and had been dropped off by her friends. The police theorized that he struck her over the head, killing her, and then placed her body in a freezer he had just bought. Then he drove the kids to his sister's house at Westport and came back home to clean up the house, dismember her body with a chainsaw, and place it back in the freezer. A day later, in the middle of the night, police say that he disposed of the body using a wood chipper. Suspicions grew when Richard's explanations of her whereabouts changed. Dawn, the housekeeper, relentlessly asked him where Hella was. At first, Richard told Dawn that he didn't know. On Friday, November 21st, the day after police believe her body was placed in the wood chipper, Richard then told her that Hella had gone to Denmark to visit her ill mother. He had told one of his friends that Hella was in the Canary Islands with her best friend Helen Dixon. And then his story changed again to simply he didn't know where she was. Her friends knew of his volatile temper and became concerned. They kept trying to reach her by phone, but to no avail. Two of them in particular added important information to the investigation. Hella had confided in Rita Buonanno about her marital situation. She told her about Richard's violent temper. In fact, Rita quoted Hella as having said, If anything happens to me, don't think it was an accident. Meantime, another friend, Lena Johansson, obtained the phone number for Hella's mother in Denmark. She called her. Turns out the mother was not in the hospital, was in good health, and didn't expect to see Hella until the following April. This was on November 29th, 10 days after Hella had disappeared. Lena went to police on December 1st with this information. That was nearly two weeks after Hella had last been seen. It was Lena, not Richard, who reported his wife missing. It would be another two weeks before Newtown Police officially listed her as missing. The overwhelming majority of missing person reports usually turn up safe after a period of time, and a wife who leaves her husband amidst marital problems, the theory went, might just be needing some more time alone. 
That same day, December 1st, private investigator Keith Mayo called police as well with his suspicions. He told them Hella had hired him and that he had given her evidence on an extramarital affair. On December 2nd, Newtown police brought Richard in for questioning. He told them that Hella was happy when she had arrived home from Frankfurt. He claimed she disappeared the next day and that he hadn't heard from her since. Meantime, they also interviewed friends of the family, including neighbors, the housekeeper, and Hella's co-workers. Everyone agreed that she was a devoted mother who couldn't have left her kids alone like this. In addition, Hella's car had been found at the Pan Am employee parking lot at JFK Airport. Items that had been in the car after her last trip to Germany remained in the back seat, and her friends knew it was uncharacteristic of her to leave without saying anything to them. On December 4th, they brought Richard back in for a lie detector test. He passed. On December 11th, Richard was on duty at the Southbury Police Department working the night shift. Newtown detectives asked superior officers to send Officer Crafts over for further questioning. He arrived in full uniform at 9.20 p.m. Two Newtown police officers had some questions prepared for him. Question. What is the story with your bedroom rug? Apparently you removed it or cut some pieces out of it. Can you explain this? Answer. All the rugs in the house are being removed and replaced. Question. What was spilled on the rug in your bedroom? Answer. Kerosene. Question. Did you cut pieces out of the rug? Answer. Yes. Two feet at a time. It's easier to remove it that way. Question. What did you do with the rug you took out of the bedroom? Answer. Dumped the bedroom rug in the Newtown landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. Question. Why have you been telling everyone different things about Hella being missing, like her mother being sick? Answer. I didn't want to say that my wife was gone and I didn't know where she was. It should be noted that, in all, Richard Crafts passed three different lie detector tests before he was ultimately arrested. Walter Flanagan, the prosecutor who would eventually convict Crafts, was quoted as saying... He is one of the most aloof and coolest persons I've ever run into. It was Flanagan who made a critical decision in the case, bringing in the Connecticut State Police Department's Western District Major Crimes Unit. This essentially took control of the case away from the Newtown force. The feeling at the time was that Newtown had done what they could to investigate the case and didn't necessarily see the need to continue. Flanagan made the decision after private investigator Mayo, frustrated by Newtown's stance, took it upon himself to pursue a lead. Working through sources, he tracked down the pieces of the rug that Richard had cut from the bedroom and told investigators he had thrown away. At the time, Newtown's garbage was transferred to a landfill in Canterbury, Connecticut. He got permission to search in the stinky pile of garbage there and retrieve the carpet samples. There were indeed stains on the blue carpet. Mayo was certain he had cracked the case. The state lab took the samples and tested them. In the end, they had to report that no traces of blood could be found among the stained samples. Another dead end. Yet it was Mayo's determination that led Flanagan to bring in the major crimes unit. The first major step by that unit was to secure a search warrant for Richard's house and wait for the right time to execute it. As luck would have it, Richard was taking his children and housekeeper on a Christmas vacation to Florida. On the afternoon of Christmas Day, a team entered through an unlocked rear window. They were overseen by Dr. Henry Lee, an expert criminal forensic scientist. His work on this case would carry him to premier assignments later in his career in the O.J. Simpson and Jean Benet Ramsey cases. 
According to one report about the team's findings, the house was a mess. There were unclean dishes laying around the sink and counter, dirty clothes everywhere, furniture out of place, and mattresses laying on the bare living room floor. They searched the house. They found what looked like might have been some repaired rugs, replaced uh, um, bedding, maybe a spot or two of blood. They found a freezer with no body inside. It would turn out, though, that the freezer they found was the longtime Kraft's family freezer, not the new one he had recently purchased. They also found more financial records and receipts. In all, 108 pieces of evidence were found and tagged over a several-day-long search while the Crafts were away on vacation. Police also gained access to Richard's MasterCard account. There, they found that he had bought a large new freezer for $375 and picked it up from a store in Danbury on November 17th. That was the day before Hella was supposed to arrive back from Frankfurt. For the record, that freezer has never been found to this day. The records also showed that Richard had bought some bed sheets and a comforter on Wednesday the 19th. That was the day that he dropped off the kids and the housekeeper with his sister in Westport for the day and returned at 7 p.m. to pick them up. The problem is that Richard had told police previously that he hadn't left the house that day. Most interesting was a November 20th receipt for $900 from Darianne Rentals, a rental company in southern Fairfield County where Richard used to live. This was the day after the power outage and the trip to Westport. Richard had rented a brush banded wood chipper. John Dwyer says that raised a number of red flags, including when the investigators went to check out the lead. And they said, can we look at that uh, wood chipper? And they said, oh, you mean the one that came in cleaner than it went out? And they found a receipt for a U-Haul rental truck, which was used to tow the wood chipper. Add to this, you recall the box of receipts that Hella had handed to private investigator Keith Mayo? Well, one of those happened to be a five-year-old receipt for a $650 still chainsaw. The chainsaw serial number was printed on the receipt, and that would come in very handy later on. Well, between the Christmas week house search and the credit card information, investigators started to imagine the unthinkable. Had Richard Crafts used a chainsaw and a wood chipper to discard of his wife's body? There had been a couple of witnesses who saw the U-Haul truck and wood chipper around Newtown and Southbury during the early morning hours between November 20th and 21st. One witness who had a lot to add was 37-year-old Joseph Hine, an employee of the Southbury Highway Department. One of the local plow drivers saw him on the Southbury side of the bridge, and the reason he was on the Southbury side, because that was a good place where you could pull over. You had room to pull your car off the road. And he went back and he said, that's strange. <laughs> and they knew who he was. Hine told investigators at around 3.30 in the morning he was plowing snow along River Road at the intersection with South Flat Hill Road. There he saw a rental truck with a large wood chipper on the back of it parked off the road on the banks of Lake Zorb. The truck lights were off, but he saw a man standing by the driver's door who started walking to the back of the truck and motioned for the plow driver to just go past him, which Hine did. Two hours later, at 5.30 in the morning, Hine was now plowing in the opposite direction. He again saw the truck at Woodchipper, but now it was moving along the road. And this time, the back of the truck was open and Hine could barely see inside and saw some wood chips in the open truck and also saw some later by the side of the road where the truck and the wood chipper had been. Crafts would later tell investigators that he was chipping some brush that had fallen on his property during the snowstorm. 
The investigators later ascertained that there had been no substantial tree damage on the property that certainly would have required the rental of such a large wood chipping machine. Another witness told of seeing the truck parked near the steel bridge between Newtown and Southbury. They said, what the heck was he doing at 3 o'clock in the morning on the bridge? Well, what he did was they found the chainsaw in the water below the bridge. The evidence led investigators to the seminal search along the edge of Lake Zor. Lake Zor is an artificially created lake, one of several created by dams along the Housatonic River. It forms the border between Newtown and Southbury. State police mobilized to the banks of the river looking for any evidence that could support their lurid theory that Richard had disposed of his wife's body using a chainsaw and a wood chipper. A detective dug through a pile of wood chips at the scene by hand. What he found was the clue they needed. It was a piece of a shredded envelope addressed to Hella Crafts at 5 Newfield Lane. The divers spent two weeks in the frigid waters starting just after New Year's Day of 1987, and what they painstakingly found were cataloged for court documents. Two teeth. One was a gold-capped tooth. The other was a tiny fragment of a tooth with part of the jaw still attached, an indication of a blunt force trauma to the face. Three ounces of human tissue, a tip of a finger with nail polish still on it, and a piece of a toe. Pieces of bone, a truncated piece of human skull, and 69 slivers of human bone. 2,660 strands of blonde hair and five droplets of human blood. Downstream from the woodchipper site under the steel bridge, police found a still chainsaw at the bottom of the river. Somebody had filed off the serial number, but the saw hadn't been in the water for too long, and it certainly wasn't rusted. Back in Dr. Lee's lab, scientists were able to locate the outline of the serial number, and applying a type of forensic acid were able to recover the number. And yes, it matched the one on the receipt given to them by Keith Mayo. It established Richard Crafts as the owner of the chainsaw that they found under that bridge. Fragments of the blue carpet and tissue matching Hella Crafts' DNA were found in the blades of the saw. During the search, Richard Crafts' brother-in-law would later claim that Richard said to him, let them dive. There's no body. It's gone. With this evidence, state officials declared Helicrafts dead on January 11, 1987, issuing a formal death certificate. At 9 o'clock that night, a dozen state police swarmed the property of Richard Crafts to tell him he was under arrest. Having surrounded his house, they contacted him by telephone. He said to them, I'm tired, I'll take care of it in the morning. When they insisted that he needed to take care of it immediately, he became angry. Apparently unaware that his house was surrounded, he yelled, don't call me back, and then hung up. What followed was a three-hour cat-and-mouse game of ongoing phone calls to try to convince Crafts to come out. He would claim he was coming out and then not appear. His children were still asleep inside the house. Finally, about 12.30 in the morning, Crafts finally emerged, looking disheveled and distraught. He was taken to police headquarters and held for arraignment later that morning. He was ordered held on a $750,000 bond. It took two trials to convict Richard Crafts. In the first one, 11 jurors voted to convict, but there was a legendary single juror who held out. The other jurors couldn't explain the irrational behavior of the single juror who refused to share their reasons for acquittal. At a second trial, the same evidence and experts testified again. 
A dental specialist was able to match the gold-capped tooth to Hella's dental records, a major finding. It helped greatly that she had just had x-rays taken at her dentist's office about a month before she disappeared. The dentist's dramatic testimony, that tooth, the lower left second bicuspid, belonged to Hella Crafts when she was alive. And Dr. Lee carefully reconstructed the limited human remains for the jury. After all, this was the first murder trial in state history where there was no body for jurors to consider. The defense claimed that it was impossible to convict, given that there was no body, and they speculated that Hella Crafts tried to frame her own death to get back at her husband. Well, the jury in the second trial took just eight hours to convict Richard Crafts. The verdict came precisely three years to the day after Richard Crafts disposed of his wife's body in a wood chipper. Richard Crafts appealed his conviction, but it was upheld on a four-to-one vote. Richard Crafts was given a 50-year sentence on January 8, 1990. He was remanded to the McDougal Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield, Connecticut, the largest prison in New England with more than 2,100 inmates. You might think he's still behind bars given that the 50 years wouldn't be over until the year 2040. But Richard Crafts was released on January 29, 2020. That's because the law was in effect at the time of his sentencing, allowing considerable credit for good behavior and for working at prison jobs. That law has since been changed. He was first sent to the Isaiah Halfway House in Bridgeport and then transferred to a transitional housing program for veterans in Bridgeport. His reintegration into society in an advanced age was considered an issue of some concern by correction officials. This phased, supervised release afforded some protection, both to crafts as well as the general public. His current whereabouts are not known. Crafts is believed to still have some family living out of state. His pension money, which was dispersed to his three children by a court-appointed attorney, was exhausted years ago, and they have gone their own way now as adults. The private detective Keith Mayo, considered instrumental in getting more police attention focused on the case, died prematurely in a car accident in 1999. Richard Crafts, now 84 years old, continues to deny any involvement in the murder or disappearance of his wife, Hella. this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, the town historian for Southbury, Connecticut, John Dwyer. If you're interested in more information on this case, incidentally, I'd suggest the book The Woodchipper Murder by Arthur Herzog III. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalect.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my page at Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. I'd love hearing from you, and you can always send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you like what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.